Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. You know, just prior to Christmas this year, there was a historical event that occurred. Um, It was actually the final uh, Big 12 football championship game, and that, of course, involved the OU football Sooners, and also um, the Huskers were fighting against them in that game. And uh, many of you know uh, Tom Osborne, who for many, many years was the head coach at the University of Nebraska and now is the athletic director. Uh, he is he's getting older. He's now in his 70s. But I want you to know that he had his heart set on winning that game. He wanted to win that game real badly. And I managed to get my hands on some very exclusive video. This is actually the reaction of Dr. Tom in his office as he's talking with his nephew after Nebraska lost to OU in the final Big 12 championship game. Now, it it starts very abruptly, so you have to watch very closely. Notice this video. Ah, humbug. Christmas humbug? Uncle, you don't mean that. Merry Christmas. What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. What right have you to be so dismal? You're rich enough. Humbug! Don't be cross, Uncle. What else can I be when I live in such a world of fools as this? Merry Christmas. What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older and not a penny richer? If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled in his own pudding. (laughs) Well, you notice that wasn't actually uh, Dr. Tom. Uh, That's actually Ebenezer Scrooge out of one of the movie versions of A Christmas Carol. By the way, that story of A Christmas Carol is one of the most famous stories in the Western world. And Ebenezer Scrooge is the most famous character of that story. Remember, he is the ill-tempered miser who hates Christmas, who cares really only about himself and about his money. And in that story and in that movie, he cold-heartedly hassles his clerk, Bob Cratchit, and his crippled son, Tiny Tim. What's interesting about that story is that it was written in 1843, and a lot of people might read the story or watch a movie version of that and not really know the story behind the story. There's a backdrop to that. Uh, That story was written against the backdrop of the plight of very poor children in the city of London. In fact, just prior to writing that story, um, a couple of years before, One half of all of the funerals in the city of London were of children under the age of 10. Now, Scrooge, over the years, has become a synonym for anyone who's hostile or negative or selfish. And today, as we're entering into the Christmas season, we want to look at a different Scrooge. In fact, we want to look at the first Christmas Scrooge. And this first Christmas Scrooge appears in a different story, in the original Christmas story that we find in Matthew chapter 2. And we had a number of people in our body 
reading through that portion a little earlier in our service. But I want you to understand something about this first Christmas story, and that is it was also a drama. And there are several characters involved in that drama. And also in this first Christmas story, in the story of the first Christmas Scrooge, there's also the plight of a child involved and the death of children connected with the story. And very much like the Christmas carol, there's a message that's woven into this original story that sometimes people miss. And we want to take a little bit more time to take a closer look at that. Part of the problem is our casual familiarity with that. Because we're so familiar with the story, we really miss the message that is behind the story. Now, what's really interesting about this first Christmas story is there are three basic responses to the original Christmas story. And we're going to see the drama of this story in Matthew 2. And personified in this drama are those three basic responses. And every person that is here, and in every year, we always fit into one of those three responses in that original Christmas story. And so the question that we all need to ask, that I need to ask and you need to ask, is where do we fit in in terms of our response in this first Christmas story. So we have a plan for today. We're going to basically do three things. Number one, we're going to look at the characters that are in the story. Then secondly, we'll examine the drama of the story more carefully. And then the third thing we'll do is we'll draw a life lesson from it. So we're going to look at the characters, we're going to look at the drama, and then we're going to look at the life lesson. Now when we say we're going to look at the characters, many of us are saying, well, I know the characters. I mean, you have Joseph, and you have Mary, and you have Jesus. And of course, Jesus is the center of the story. Jesus is the catalyst behind the different responses that people have to the story. He is the catalyst behind responses to who he is both then, when the story was unfolding, and also today. So let's look, though, at the other characters, maybe a little less well-known to us. So the first character I want to look at is the original Christmas Scrooge, who is Herod. Now, in that day, the New Testament era, there were several people who were named Herod. But the Herod that we have before us in Matthew 2 is Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great was not a Jew, but he married a Jew. And when the Romans came in, they decided to appoint Herod the Great under the title, the King of the Jews. He was, in essence, the king over the area of Palestine. And what is interesting is that the people of Israel never accepted Herod the Great, certainly as the king of the Jews. They viewed him as a usurper. But he is the first character we want to take a little closer look at. When you look at Herod the Great, you see someone who is extremely talented and capable. Dwight Pentecost writes this about him. He, he says, he was unquestionably a man of talent. The personality of Herod was impressive, and he possessed great physical strength. His intellectual powers were far beyond the ordinary. And he says he possessed great tact when he saw fit to employ it. 
In the great crises of his life, he was never at a loss as to what to do, and no one ever accused Herod the Great of cowardice. He's a very talented and capable person. He was an outstanding military leader. Uh, One of the problems that they had in Palestine is they had a number of marauding bands who would go around robbing people. And when Herod the Great became the king of the Jews, he very successfully secured Palestine against those marauding bands. Very talented and capable. He was an outstanding builder. You can go back and read the history of Herod the Great. He built amphitheaters, he built athletic facilities, he built the port city of Caesarea. And if you ever go back to Israel, you will still see some of the remains of that port city that he built to this very day. And maybe the most interesting and intriguing thing that he built was what is called the Fortress of Masada. And not very far outside of Jerusalem, there's this large extended plain in the air And he built upon that this fortress called Masada. And it was so impregnable that at one point later on in the history of the nation, 1,000 civilians held off the entire Roman army for multiple weeks from that fortress of Masada. Herod the Great was very talented and very capable, but he was also very corrupt and very cruel. In fact, it it began at the beginning with him for the very first political office that he ever held. He talked his way into that office with a bribe. He was a morally corrupt person, married nine times. Pentecost says of him, he was the incarnation of brute lust, which in turn became the burden of the lives of his children. History tells of few more immoral families than the house of Herod, which by the intermarriage of its members so entangled the genealogical tree as to make it a veritable puzzle. He was very corrupt and cruel. He was a cold person. He was impulsive. Herod the Great was extremely suspicious. In fact, If he sensed any threat to his throne as the king of the Jews, even a remote threat, he would make sure he isolated that threat and eliminated them from the scene. Herod executed his brother-in-law, whom he had appointed as high priest. Why did he do that? His brother-in-law was becoming too popular with the people. And that was a threat to Herod the Great. Boom, there goes brother-in-law. Herod executed one of his wives. He eliminated his mother-in-law. And some of you are thinking, I've thought that same thought myself. He killed, he had two favorite sons, killed them both. Five days before he died, he made sure that another one of his sons was executed before he personally experienced death. The historian Josephus described in this way, he was a man of great barbarity toward all men equally. 
was a very corrupt and cruel person. And what was really interesting about him is he, he got this disease, and as he neared his death, he was concerned that he would not be mourned when he died. So he came up with this idea. He went out and found many of the leaders of the nation and the distinguished citizens of Jerusalem, and he had them imprisoned. And he wrote down this executive order. He said, the day that I die, I want them all killed. If they're not going to mourn for my death, they will mourn at my death. Fortunately, that executive order was never carried out. But Herod is the first Scrooge, and he personifies a common response that people have to the person of Jesus Christ, even to this very day, which we'll look at a little bit more later. But we're just putting together the characters here. A second group of characters I want you to note are the chief priests and the scribes. They appear in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 4. And they were, of course, the religious leaders, the civil leaders, the political leaders of Israel. They were experts in the religious law. They were members of the Sanhedrin, and they were officially the keepers of the Old Testament. And they're like a lot of people today, people who are religious people, people who go to church, people who are aware of the truth, are aware of the facts. Some of them are actually keepers of the Bible. They don't lack information at all. The chief priests and the scribes personify another common response to the person of Christ that many people even have to this very day, which we'll look at a little bit more in a few moments. Now, as we complete the cast of characters, the third group we want to look at are the magi, the magi. And we see them appearing in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king, and magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. And they were saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Who are these guys? And why are they showing up in Jerusalem of all places? I remember one time talking to a Uh, a little kid, and I was asking, who are the magi? And they said, those were the wise guys. Well, they were the wise guys. Historians tell us a lot about the magi. They tell us that they were scholars. They were scientists. Uh, They were men who were skilled in philosophy and mathematics and medicine and astronomy. And the magi historically were consultants to governmental leaders And the history of the Magi could be traced all the way back to the Babylonian and the Medo-Persian Empire. And you'll notice it says in verse 1 of chapter 2 that they came from the east. And if you get a map out and you know your history, you know that if you go east of Israel, you go right into the area that is the center of the Babylonian and the Medo-Persian Empire. That's who they were, but more importantly, the question is, why are they showing up in Israel? Why do they care about a Jewish Messiah? And this is where 
the story turns a little cool where we see the sovereignty of God because six centuries before this event happens in Matthew 2, in 586 B.C., during the reign of the Babylonian Empire, the Babylonians came into Israel and swooped up a group of the youngest of the cream of the crop of Israel and took them back to Babylon and included that group was a guy by the name of Daniel. And if you go back in the Old Testament and you study Daniel, you'll notice in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 48 that there came a point in time when the Babylonian ruler appointed Daniel as chief over the magi, the wise men. And if you go back and you study his history, you'll know that his influence spanned not only the Babylonian empire, but into the Medo-Persian empire that took power after the Babylonian empire. Daniel's influence was great. And in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and 25, something very interesting happens. God gives through the person of Daniel, a time of prediction as to just when the coming of the Messiah would occur. And if you just put the pieces of the puzzle together, you realize that the story of the Messiah coming was passed down from generation to generation among the Magi. And Daniel's influence shows up six centuries later. You know, I was just thinking about that. You think at any moment Daniel thought that Daniel envisioned that six centuries later, followers of the true God would come from the east where he lived to Jerusalem looking for the Messiah? Do you think he envisioned any of that? No, I don't think he could have. And think about you and me today. I don't think we understand. You know, one of the problems people have in life is life is always a little box. Life is just what I see right now. Oh, no, 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 no. With God, that is not the case. And every one of us has an opportunity to influence other people with our life and to influence other people with the message of salvation. And I believe that we are unaware until we get to the other side of just exactly who God is going to influence through us. I'm just here to tell you that the choices that you make and the life that you live and the truth that you share is going to have ripple effect. It will. And none of us know how God is going to use our presence and our interaction with people, our sharing of truth, with people in the future. So don't underestimate that. What we said, the first thing we wanted to do is to put together the full cast of characters. The second thing we want to do is to look at the drama. And we've broken down the drama into several parts. You have the Magi's arrival in verses 1 and 2. You have Herod's inquiry in verses 3 to 8. Then you have the Magi in Bethlehem in verses 9 to 11. And then you have God's warning that he gives in verses 12 to 15. So let's just zero in on that drama a little bit more. We've already read verses 1 and 2 of, of uh, Matthew 2, where we have the Magi's arrival, where they come to look for 
the Messiah who had been born in Jerusalem. And you remember that uh, they say in verse 2, we saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. They come asking the question, notice this is a very important wording that we see in in verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? What was Herod the Great's title? King of the Jews. And that leads us to Herod's inquiry in verses 3 to 8. Notice verse 3 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Now that word troubled was, was used, for example, of shaking medicine up. In our vernacular, we would say this, Herod the Great was shook up. Remember how paranoid he is. Any indication of a threat to his throne would set him off. And here comes the question to the one who was the king of the Jews. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, I want you to understand something. This wasn't like just a couple of guys wandered into Jerusalem. Remember, the Magis were consultants to governmental leaders, and they no doubt appeared in Jerusalem with a cavalry escort. Everybody knew that they were there, and they came saying, we want to hear and find out about the guy who was born the king of the Jews. And so, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And then I'll tell you, this is a great, a great confirmation of historical background, and all Jerusalem with him. Because here was the idea. When Herod was upset, you better duck. You don't know just what could happen. When he goes into a rage, he could be quite malicious and quite maniacal. And so when he is all shook up, all Jerusalem is all shook up with him. But he's got a plan. Remember, he knows what he's doing very intelligent and very cunning. And so he said, you know what? Here's a potential threat. I want to find out where this child was born, and I want to find out when this child was born. And so he goes on the pursuit of the where in verses 4 to 6. He gathers together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquires of them where the Messiah was to be born. And notice they say to him, the chief priests and the scribes, ah, no problem, it's very, very simple. He is to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, you know, when you see that response by the chief priests and the scribes, it tells you volumes of where they're coming from. Now, just think about it for a moment. They are aware fully of what Scripture said. They are aware fully of the word that had come from the shepherds, which was quite a number of weeks before, where the shepherds had talked about the Messiah being born, and seeing the Messiah in the manger in Bethlehem. And so we have a question here for the chief priests and the scribes. What are you doing in Jerusalem? 
You ought to be in Bethlehem. If the Messiah is born in Bethlehem, what are you doing in Jerusalem? It's just five miles away. It's a relatively short walk. Well, it tells us that we have people here who are aware of the facts. They have knowledge of the Bible. They have awareness of the truth. They're certainly religious people. They're people who go to the synagogue. And yet, there is no interest in a personal encounter with the king. Now, that's the where. The when comes up in verses 7 and 8. See, the where he gets from the chief priests and the scribes, but the when he needs to get from the magi. So then, Herod secretly called the magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, hey, guys, I want you to go and search out that child. And when you found him, would you report back to me? Because you see, I want to come and worship him too. And we see the insidious move here by Herod the Great, the insecure one, the paranoid one. He wants to know when because he wants to know the age of the child. And he has a very sly plan involved and has nothing to do with worshiping. And that plan is deviously played out in verse 16 later on in Matthew 2 where he figures out the approximate age of the child and makes sure there's a little cushion there. And he says, every child two and under, I want all of them killed. Now, the drama continues to unfold as we see the Magi in Bethlehem in verses 9 and 11. After hearing this from from Herod the Great, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house... They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So the star that had led them to Jerusalem reappears and it leads them to a house, not to a manger, to a house, because this is now months and months after the manger era. They are now living in a house, which takes us back to some of those manger scenes that we have. You know, you have a manger scene, and you'll have some animals, and you have Mary and Joseph and the baby, and occasionally you'll have these wise guys that are there. They weren't there then. They were there later when they were in the house. But notice their response. Did you notice their response? They worshipped him by giving. Uh, A number of years, over the number of years, I've been asked uh, about our services, and they say, why don't you just put a box somewhere, you know, right by the door or even outside the worship center? If people want to take their gifts, they can just put them in a box. One of the reasons why we don't do that is that we believe that giving is one of the most significant expressions of worship that we can do. That's why we want to make it a focus of what we're doing. And that's what they do. They worship by 
giving. And they give these gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Why those three things? There's all kinds of things that you could give. Why gold and why frankincense, which was a form of incense, and why myrrh? Well, I believe there's symbolism behind these three gifts. Uh, For example, gold. King's crowns and their scepters were made of gold. So gold is a picture of royalty. Frankincense comes from a gum that is in trees. They would make incisions in the bark, and this gum would come out. And that was the incense, the frankincense. And we learn from the Old Testament, from Leviticus chapter 2, that frankincense was often used in offerings to God. And so frankincense is a a picture of deity. And then you have myrrh, which was another kind of tree gum, and myrrh had a very fragrant scent to it. And it was used as a fragrance or a perfume, and, and some men and some women would put myrrh on them. And myrrh really is a picture of humanity, and you're beginning to see the pattern here. A gift that is a picture of royalty, a gift that is a picture of deity, and a gift that is a picture of humanity. But myrrh also had another use. In that day, um, they didn't embalm bodies like we embalm bodies today. And so when you had a dead body, and it would be around for a little while, um, when you have a dead body, it begins to smell. And so they would use myrrh to cover that odor. And myrrh is a, is a hint here that the king, the God-man, was destined for death. And then the last part of the drama is God's warning in verses 12 to 15. It says in verse 12, And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the magi left for their own country by another way. And when they had gone, verse 13, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. And he remained there until the death of of Herod the Great. And this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. We see here that God's sovereign hand is on history. He has a plan, and he works that plan out in his sovereignty. What is really interesting is that this drama that began 2,000 years ago continues today. We have Jesus who is a living Savior, and wise men and wise women still seek Him. Remember, we had three parts we were looking at. We were looking at the characters, and then we were looking at the drama. We want to conclude by looking at the life lesson. And here's the core of the life lesson for every one of us. What is your response to the king of Christmas? What is your response? It's going to be one of three. 
Three responses personify the three responses that every person on the planet has to the person of Jesus Christ. Every person fits into one of these three responses. Let's look at them. The first response is the response of hostility, the response of Herod, who was the first Scrooge. His response was to just openly reject Jesus. He had active animosity towards Jesus. He was in vehement opposition to Jesus. Do we see that same response in our day? Yes, we do. We see the response of hostility. Sometimes it's a response that we see from groups. For example, in our day, it's a common response from those in radical Islam. You know, there's an organization called Open Doors, and it tells us this, that in our era, men and women, 100 million Christians are being imprisoned, experiencing physical hostility for their faith, and even death. You know, we're not really experiencing that in our culture, but we forget During our era, 100 million Christians are experiencing that response. What is interesting, of the top 25 countries that are hostile to the name of Jesus Christ, except for North Korea and China, all of them are Muslim countries. I don't know if you read about it or not, but last month, there was a massacre in a Baghdad church. Christians who were in their church assembly listening to a scripture reading. And these radicals came in and instantly killed 58 of them and severely injured 78 of them and then took 100 more hostage and left the building with them. You see, we have the same response of hostility to the name of Jesus Christ to this very day. Sometimes it's a response of groups, and sometimes it's a response of an individual, where an individual just says, "Eh, that, that Jesus stuff, it's stupid, it's stupid, it's stupid. I have no interest in it. It's just a crutch. And for anybody who has a hostile response to the person of Christ, I simply would want to say to them, and I have shared this principle with some of them, you need to understand something about Jesus. He came into this world as a lamb, but he is coming back a second time as a lion, and he will deal with hostility to who he is. And and there's a couple of passages. You can jot them down if you want to look at them more closely that talk about the lion returning in judgment. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 to 9 is one of them. And Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 17 is another. There we see a picture of the lion returning in judgment among those who would in hostility reject who he is. So that's the first possible response, a response of hostility. There is a second possible response, and that is the response of indifference. See, that's ultimately the core of the response of the chief priests and the scribes. Oh, they're aware of facts. 
They knew the story, as many people today, we know the story of Christmas. They could relate to you the story of Christmas, but it's really no big deal to them. You see, they have no interest in a personal encounter with the king of the universe. They may know about him, but they're not really interested in knowing him. What is really interesting about that response of of indifference is this. It has a similar outcome as the response of hostility because Jesus is going to deal with that response also in much the same way. And I've often talked to people like this who are indifferent, and I've had to remind them, do you realize you are only one breath away from eternity at any given moment in your life? Just this morning, I was reading the comments of an individual who was talking about what he thinks about life. And he said, you know, there is no hell. There is no heaven. There is nothing beyond death. This life is all that there is. I've actually talked to this person. I've said, oh, you couldn't be more wrong. You couldn't be more wrong. And one day, if you don't change your response, you will face the lion. In Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed to men, to mankind, to die once, and after that comes the judgment. And you may be indifferent, but you better be ready because it's coming. And the, the amazing thing about God is he makes a call. He makes a call out to those who are hostile and to those who are indifferent. And here's his call, which is coming through the mouth of the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 5.20. We beg you to be reconciled to God. We beg you. We beg you to do that. Very, very important. There is a third response to the person of Jesus, and that is the response of the Magi and the shepherds, and that is the response of worship. See, worshiping Jesus Christ starts out with a life decision that someone makes to turn from running their own life to trusting in Jesus as their rescuer from sin and judgment. That's where the worship begins, where we understand that we're without hope apart from what the baby Jesus brings to us. That's where worship starts. But worship continues For those of us who have trusted in him as our Savior, it continues by honoring him on a daily basis. You see, his desire from you and for me who know him personally is that we would honor him with our life. Many of us are working through our Christmas list. We were just doing a lot of that yesterday. What a crazy world in which we live. I mean, just getting out of a parking lot took me 10 minutes. Now, some of you I know already have all your Christmas shopping done. I don't even want to talk to you, okay? Uh, We're still finishing up on all of that. But I just want to say this. As you work through your Christmas list, don't forget to put the Lord Jesus at the top of that list. You see, what he wants from you and me is that we would present our bodies to him as a living sacrifice. And our bodies are just a picture of who we are as a person. 
having trusted him as our Savior, he wants us to honor him with our life, to present our life to him. That's our gift to him, even at this Christmas season. A living sacrifice. I want to honor you with my life. This is the greatest story ever told, isn't it? The greatest story ever told. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you so much for the truth of your word. We thank you for the story, and we even thank you for the whole story of the first Christmas Scrooge. And Father, we realize that every one of us needs to analyze where are we right now? Is our response to the person of Christ one of hostility? Is it one of indifference? Is it one of worship? Is it our goal this year, this season, this time to honor you with our life? When you look at the story in a fresh way, how can you come to any other conclusion but that is the way it should be? May you be honored by how we live this Christmas. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.